McGeckin and this is the Curious Kiwi Capitalist Podcast. My guest for this show is David Quigg. David's the head of mergers and acquisitions at Quigg Partners, a boutique Wellington law firm specialising in M&A and a few other areas. In this show, we'll discuss M&A from a lawyer's perspective, including public versus private M&A, a practical approach to buying and selling a company, including agreeing on key terms and a memorandum of understanding, how a fixed auction process is unusual in a private M&A transaction, non-disclosure agreements, earnouts and their problems, the need for early OIA approval in the case of a, a foreign buyer, foreign investor, Due diligence, retentions, rips and warranties, shareholders agreement including drag-along, carry-along and Russian roulette clauses, why asset sales are preferred by buyers even in larger transactions if possible, net asset adjustments in a share sale and a number of other topics. It was a fascinating discussion and I hope you find it just as stimulating as I did. Welcome, David, to the podcast. Thank you very much indeed, Bruce. Thank you for doing this. It's a uh, it's a complex area. This this particular part of uh, the M and A process, and I'm sure it's a difficult part of of the of the law as well. Yeah. What's the process that you see, uh, and where do lawyers get involved in that M and A process? No. Um, well, the first one is probably to differentiate between public M&A and private M&A. Um, public M&A is a lot more uh, in the public domain. Uh, it's much more regulated by the Takeovers Act, or if you're doing a scheme of arrangement, uh, the rules that govern schemes. And also you've got the factor in the stock exchange listing uh, requirements insider trading, uh, restrictions, etc. Yet private M&A is perhaps less of that regulatory uh, regime and much more contractual uh, and negotiation in private as well. Right. So um, from a lawyer's perspective, uh, differentiating between those two kind of alternatives is quite critical. Uh, and you'd have to say in New Zealand, we don't have a huge amount of public M&A. So the, the, the public M&A amount, um, perhaps our last involvement was for McDonald's in respect of the investment in Plexia. Um, that is kind of one in 20 uh, right. is in the public M&A uh, space. Most of the New Zealand transactions is in the private M&A and it's contractual based. Yes. Perhaps let's talk about the simpler process first, the private M&A, uh, and then at the end, if we have time, talk about the differences with with, with public. Sure. Uh, when you go through, when a, when a client approaches you and they might be selling or, or acquiring, what's the the, the process that, that, that you see, perhaps for a mid-market size business, perhaps Choose your choose your figure, choose yep. your transaction type, and, and as you go through that process, where do they ask for advice? Oh, I think the earliest they get the lawyers involved, the better. Yeah. Uh, that's obviously a bit of a self-serving uh, statement. 
the beauty of getting the lawyers involved, and particularly ones that do a lot of these transactions, it is they get those milestones quickly, uh, and you make good progress, and you can set a realistic timetable. The the first one um, that normally comes up is the discussion about should we have a term sheet, heads of agreement, uh, etc. In New Zealand, would strongly recommend that you do, uh, because what that does do is get agreement on price. So, and that's not legal agreement; that's a commercial agreement. Right. So, uh, all things being equal, I'm prepared to pay twenty mil, um, say for the uh, tech business that you've got. Right. And so, what that then says, okay, well. If we've got a meeting of minds on that, subject to due diligence, subject to the documentation, let's agree to that and let's agree on confidentiality. So there'll be a built-in confidentiality, non-disclosure agreement, but also from a probably the purchaser's point of view, exclusivity. So unless you're going out to tender, because most of the transactions are, are private, um, negotiated transactions, giving some form of reasonable exclusivity, 20 working days, whatever, uh, to enable the documentation and the due diligence to proceed. I think that's one thing that we would notice in New Zealand. Our heads of agreement, term sheet, MOU, whatever you want to call it, is generally a lot shorter than overseas. So we really do concentrate on confidentiality, that commitment from both sides, uh, etc. Commercial agreement, that's non-binding commercial agreement in respect of price or a formula for how you deal with price. And then a binding commitment in respect of exclusivity, access to due diligence, etc. And that, we would say, you can do in two pages. Uh, often if you're dealing with American experience or Australian They'll be up to 10 pages or more. We personally, generally, New Zealand prefers it shorter because it's less involves the lawyers. It's more likely to be able to be negotiated in a you know, weak uh, point of view and enables the clients to get on with the business. And so that's the first step. It's interesting, isn't it? There's many people who only know about a fixed process. So you have rounds or fixed dates as you go through an essentially an auction process with a group being taken out in the first round, another group taken out in the second round, leaving the um, the first successful possible buyer. Yeah. And yeah, that really happens. That perhaps it happens in the, um, in the in the public stock market. Yeah. But really, it is trying to get. Um, from a, a sell side perspective, trying to get the buyers to yep. actually make an offer, uh, perhaps at the same time, and comparing different offers. Yeah, and, and I agree that you know sometimes you get that competitive uh, process. That's generally in the bigger range uh, of the assets. I mean, a recent one was Tip Top, obviously, uh, was sold in the public M and A space. You get that partly depends on whether it's a buyer's market or vendor's market. Um, obviously, at the moment, you know, the private equity are significant players in the uh, bigger size to transaction. In New Zealand, um, that's great. Um, we just don't have that many big transactions that can normally justify 
um, the tender process or auction process. Yes. So most of them, particularly uh, in the tech space, which we're involved in a lot, uh, they are mid-market or, or uh, at the lower end, you know, 25 million to 50 million, etc. And then they are normally negotiated transactions, not tender, and therefore you go through the MOU, etc., heads of agreement is your first step. So the m advisor, the investment banker, has reached out to a, uh, a foreign big tech company, and I know you represent some big tech uh, overseas companies. Uh, they've asked the big tech company to sign a non-disclosure agreement. What are the different clauses in that non-disclosure agreement that are key yep. to negotiation? Well, uh, the non-disclosure is mainly that you'll keep the information confidential and that you'll only use it for the purpose of assessing whether you'll um, bid or not. There's not been <clears throat> in New Zealand uh, any significant litigation that I'm aware on confidentiality agreements. There has been overseas, uh, particularly in the US, but they're again normally um, quite relatively standard documents these days that you'll receive the information, you'll keep it confidential and you'll only use it for that restricted use. Sometimes um, where you need to be careful that there's a restraint uh, in the confidentiality agreement, that's not the norm uh, in New Zealand and you know and that may be appropriate if in fact they're already a, a, a very strong competitor so you're you're worried about that they could get that information the the transaction falls over and then they could use it against the vendor effectively or potential vendor in terms of the term and the indemnity clause what do you find the normal term of the agreement is? Normal, normally now it's two years, so that, that it would apply for two years. It used to be open-ended uh, five, ten years ago, but there's a norm that it's now just uh, two years. I think there's sometimes you're going to have a fight about the indemnity provision. Uh, they're probably in it 70, 70, 30 uh, percent there included. The main thing that you're looking there for is um, it's limited to strict breach obligations. There's a good argument some overseas parties make that they just don't give indemnities etc. To be honest it's not a deal breaker whether it includes or doesn't include an indemnity. Kind of shifts the onus of proof a wee bit but other than that you've still got to litigate uh, if in fact you're looking to enforce them. It's a key point that no one's actually taken mm. any action against someone who's breached an NDA and from afar I, I think I have seen breaches uh, and I think the more worldly clients understand that there's only so much protection they have from a from an NDA regardless yeah. of the, the fact that it's an agreement, a legal agreement. Yeah. Okay, so you've, you've signed the, both parties have signed a, an NDA um, information has been exchanged, and then uh, the the acquirer has decided to make an an, an offer. Yep. Uh, I call those non-binding indicative offers, MBIOs. Yep. I know they've got all different sorts of um, names, and perhaps the form of the agreement rather than the name of the agreement is what matters here. What are the key terms in that MBIO? We've yep. covered some of those already. Yep. Uh, well, again, it's price, uh, and is it formula based? 
you know, is it structured as a upfront earnout component, uh, etc. Um, again, depending on where you want to see the debate or the time spent, um, our one is to get the commercial agreement that you know is it going to be all upfront or is it going to be an earnout based. Earnouts um, are an obvious way of trying to split the difference when there's a vendor um, wants you know ten dollars and the purchaser's offering five, so you kind of split the difference and say, well, well, we'll do an earnout if X, Y, and Z happens. Our word of caution on that is that earnouts are very easy to say; they are incredibly difficult to document. And then uh, also, they are significantly difficult to implement because obviously, for the period of the earnout, the vendor is as interested in the business as, as is the purchaser. So there's that period where the purchaser's paid over the fixed amount. Let's say it's it's five out of the ten, and there's a two and a half uh, on earnout. And yet, if it lasts or it's complicated, effectively the business is going to be run more by the vendor to the earnout result rather than to the purchaser who may want to rationalise it, put it together with their other business, etc., etc. So, as much as there's a commercial um, bonus in terms of bridging the gap of price, there is a cost. Uh, in terms of just how difficult that is, how complicated you're making it. And um, it, it really, for us as lawyers, it's fantastic because we don't <laughs> shut the file. You know, the file is left open for the period of the earnout because you're going to be lawyered up for that two-year period. That's not necessarily good for a purchaser. Uh, uh, because they want to get on, do things to it, yet the vendor will want certain restrictions as to what you can do to operate the business during the per, uh, period of the earnout. The, the incentives that that earnout creates versus um, the different outcomes that the, the two parties are, are looking for. That's a good point. The, the other issue we see is uh, which line item has been used f- to drive that that earn out amount, whether it's if it's volume, yeah, pretty simple revenue, mm. probably reasonably simple. But earnings EBITDA, by golly, that can be played around yeah. with. So. Well, and then you get the accountants, um, and you get the games that people play. As you say, if it's if it's a revenue figure, turnover figure, which is you know less likely to be played around with, etc. But as you say, once you get into EBITDA, it, it is so, and the accounting. Um, kind of debate on various things of obsolescence or whatever can be so variable. Yes. So we, we have that um, MBIO. What, what do you call the MBIO? What's your standard? Uh, for, uh, well, no, we, we don't really have a standard. Um, heads of agreement. Yeah, or, or MOU, heads MOU. of agreement, term sheet. All of those are kind of a, yeah. a mixture of them. Yeah, sure. Uh, right, so we've reached agreement. Often, by the way, also um, that agreement is between the lawyers, isn't it, rather yeah. than between the, the the vendor and the the acquirer, the purchaser. 
lawyers often play a, yeah. a we, we would, in, at that instance, we would hope that the clients are more driving that position because uh, effectively it isn't uh, intended that that would be a binding arrangement. You're trying to reach a commercial agreement uh, and therefore our experiences would like to check that um, we're not being set up or our client isn't being set up by you know little expressions you can put in those clauses um, or in those agreements, I should say. But we would see that is more client-led. When you're doing the definitive agreement and the bigger document, that's much more lawyer-led. Right. Um, and we'd like to kind of get the clients to hopefully build a wee bit of relationship at that stage because that builds momentum. Mm-hmm. And it also builds expectation, etc., which we would see is is very valuable. We do see that uh, that earlier stage of the agreement, we would raise you know a timetable, so that we've got the legal document that's fine and dandy, but either as part of that or a schedule or something just worked. Uh, kind of uh, adjacent to that is a timetable. So are we aiming to, to close at the end of July? You know, we're in June now, or are we doing it for August, September? So that expectations um, can be kind of uh, built into the process. Um, so because without that, um, the, the process can kind of meander and that's um, not good. One that we uh, were involved with recently, um, our client, which was a, a very well uh, versed uh, North American client, came to it at the end and saying, "Look, you know, the vendor was getting deal fatigue. You know, we need to wrap this up. Um, you know, there are small New Zealand, you know, tight knit group of vendors." They're getting so it was a really useful um, discipline that we, you know, we had some very interesting legal issues, but we were giving the given the firm guidance from the client that now is not the time to play legal games. That you know the commercial momentum was now waning somewhat, and you had to bring it to a, a conclusion. So, um, you know, those kind of signposts are very useful because everybody wants to either make the deal or not. Um, you don't want to kind of spend a, a lot of money and on advisors, etc., and then it's, it's, it's for no now. Though the intermediaries, whether they're financial or legal intermediaries, and can often take that heat out of that discussion as well, I, I find. We see two steps from, from here, from the MBIO. One is they go into due diligence, or two is that uh, a little bit more discussion is held, and then it goes into a sale and purchase agreement with due diligence after that. Yeah. Which depends often on the, on the two parties and yeah. their lawyers. What's, what's, what do you see? What's your view? I'd kind of see them that they would often go in parallel. Um, often we would say that due diligence starts first, you know, before the documentation, so that at least, um, you know, you're not spending all of that time and energy if, in fact, it's that unsure um, that you're wanting to go ahead, etc., at least get through that process. One that we would um, put 
uh, in front of you if you are a overseas purchaser is that also both those two issues but also statutory approval or overseas investment office approval also be addressed at the earliest possible stage because if you are an overseas purchaser and you potentially may need overseas investment office approval because of the timing impact of that approval you need to address that issue at its earliest and, and we would be say as part of the due diligence um, you should address that at the outset because if you are caught and for whatever reason you're caught by a land approval and because under the present regime that takes over six months you can see that that really does uh, upset the uh, transaction timetable because most purchases kind of do not unless it's one of a mega deal um, and there's some regulatory requirement in the US or China or whatever um, that puts a big uh, kind of question mark on the transaction itself. So we've we've done our due diligence hopefully well possibly delayed and we often see a delay because uh, the acquiring party doesn't want to spend a large sum of money on due diligence until they've reached agreement on, on many of the key terms. Yep. So they've, they've done the due diligence uh, and, and now you're at the stage where they feel like they've got sufficient information to, to, to close the deal. They ask you to prepare a sale and purchase agreement. What are the key parts of that sale yep. and purchase agreement? So the, the first one on that one is um, who are you acting for? Um, so on a tender, and these are when some of the differences come up, on a tender sale, in fact, it will be the vendor council that will prepare the um, first draft of the uh, agreement, and they will have done it quite early on in the process um, because they want to compare like with like effectively in the indicative bid stage. In a private uh, M&A, and it's not going out to tender, the Purchasers Council will prepare it. And um, obviously they want to feed the results of the due diligence into that draft. And um, the critical one is obviously price. Um, so that's the, the, the main one. And then you're looking at basically issues around about escrow or retention. So um, because of the use of trusts in New Zealand... Um, that's probably the one that uh, uh, comes up the most. Uh, if it's two big corporates to each other, there's not kind of that credit risk for a, uh, a potential warranty claim. And that's a bunch of issues about how much you put aside, how long you put it aside for, what are the caps and collars um, for the claims. Then you're looking at the chunk about the restraint because obviously if you're buying it on a multiple based, uh, you're at least wanting, if possible, that multiple to apply to the restraint uh, arrangement uh, that you have and quite a comprehensive restraints in terms of you know non-compete, non-customers, non-employees, etc. Uh, and then your last one is your warranties. You've got 25 pages of uh, what potential warranties uh, that you've got <laughs> plugged into the system 
uh, and then you have potentially some attachments which might be, you know, new employment agreement, new executive uh, contracts, trans- transitional services uh, agreements, those kind of ones. But that's where you're concentrating your negotiation um, to try and tease out, you know, where the pushback is um, from the vendor. You may also have a shareholders agreement of uh, uh, less than 100% stakes being taken in the, in the company in the case of a private uh, agreement. If you have a shareholder agreement, what are some of the key terms in that shareholders agreement, you know, in a private case? So if, if you are a partial acquisition and therefore it is a, um, a shareholders agreement as well, that actually changes the tone of the negotiation from the outset because in the traditional buy and sell, I buy you, I run it, you say goodbye, you may stay there for a year or two or whatever, but it's a, it's a handing over of the baton. When you're going into one where, in fact, there is a residual uh, shareholding and you're, you're both now got your hand on the baton. So in our de bono hat, you know, analogy or whatever, you're a lot more less aggressive. So uh, a right. lot more less dogmatic um, on a, than a vanilla purchase because you're going to have an ongoing relationship um, with them. So even as lawyers, we would say, you should be less aggressive, uh, much more group hug type arrangement because you are going to have to work out the shareholders agreement. The shareholders agreement will have often what are the super majority issues, i.e. what are the issues which require you both to approve them. You know, is it the business plan? Is it major transactions only? Is it how you're going to you know, exit uh, the joint venture, etc. because you've, you're turning from a purchase into now a joint venture. And from our experience, that should uh, you should adopt a different kind of approach to get the best result because after you've done the purchase, you don't want to have been fighting effectively because you're now again sitting around the same table trying to get the best result for the joint venture for both parties. So um, it, it is a kind of a different approach which we would recommend is adopted. And you know, then you've also got to kind of say, well, what's reasonable for the other side? What's the protective mechanism that is reasonable that they have? And then work out, okay, how do we resolve a deadlock? And what's the client's view in terms of um, resolving deadlocks? Because none of them are easy, you know. Um, there's various choices between exit mechanisms, etc., etc., and you don't really know whether you're going to be the buyer or the seller at that mm. stage. So um, you're trying to put the alternatives to clients, and they will then have to choose and what best fits their commercial needs. So you have a minority shareholder, perhaps the original owner of the company. They now hold 
much less than they used to. They used to control in the company. They've sold a majority to a to another party. That other party perhaps has a majority of directors on the board. What specific? Let's let's give a specific question. What's the the majority shareholder has decided to sell out a few years later. What are some of the protections that that minority shareholder would have in the case of the majority yep. selling out? So that that's mainly comes down to what's colloquially called the drag-along, um, carry-along uh, provision. And the drag-along is basically where the majority, and you have to define the majority, is able to drag the minority along and sell out mainly because it's prefaced on the commercial position that a purchaser will not want to buy a majority position they'll, or they'll pay the top dollar for 100% of the business um, and therefore it's in everybody's interest if they want to get the top dollar that they can drag the minority along uh, to sell out and um, the reverse of that is a carry-along and that's where basically the majority do find out that they'll, um, they've got someone who'll take their interest, let's say it's 75 or 80 percent, and the minority don't want to find themselves basically stranded with a new majority shareholder not getting a right to exit, so they're allowed to carry along with the major shareholder to exit at that price. So it's mainly to kind of agree what is the percentage uh, that applies uh, there. And in, in our view, it's best to have those provisions in. Uh, they're good provisions. Um, it's just getting a commercial agreement, what's the percentage uh, that's appropriate. And you know, then you can basically play, play it out. We will often raise... Do you want to have a Russian roulette type formula? Uh, and that's basically where you can issue a notice to buy out. And at that price, uh, the other person who receives it can turn it on you and buys you out at that price. And um, that is a very, you know, the, the, the procedure is set up so that it's a fair price that's stated. Uh, obviously, it works best with two basically equal financial players because they've both got the financial ability to buy or sell, uh, etc. But again, what you're desperately wanting is to avoid a situation where there is a majority and a minority and they're effectively at war with each other within the marriage. Uh, and that's what it is. But there's no way of getting any resolution. The minorities decided just to be as obstructive as possible. Uh, and that's obviously the majority's view on life. Um, the minority believes the majority is just trying to bully them in respect of any, every uh, proposal and as being, you know, not taking any fair regard of the interest of the minority. And everybody's lawyered up. And it's just costing a huge amount of dead money. There's no value being created effectively other than a lot of heat. Um, but there's not sufficient light in terms of saying the business is actually hurting by this cost. 
it needs to be stopped. So if you can agree that uh, exit mechanism, um, often you go to the kind of the employment scenario where you go off to mediation and you know you, you you try and strike a deal that way but again that's an expensive process um, but we do recommend that the clients think through how deadlocks are going to be resolved what is the best mechanism or mechanisms uh, in place uh, what are they comfortable with and even the thing outside the square that basically would it be possible that we agree neither will sell for a standstill period of let's say three or five years and then outside that standstill period free transfer can be given so that um, there's no restrictions because if you've got preemptive rights that kind of uh, kills value and would the clients be prepared to consider that as an alternative Um, now often clients won't but again trying to press for the clients how would you like the disputes to be resolved what's a mechanism that you can live with because often unfortunately there are disputes uh, and as much as we gain from those disputes there's not quite the commercial benefit that is the cost another dispute would be capital dilution where the majority shareholder believes or the business does need more more capital but the minority shareholder doesn't want to match the uh, the, the the capital that the majority shareholder is putting in so another good example yep. of yep. of a dispute uh, that could happen without a properly prop, properly drawn shareholders agreement and good advice going back to the sale and purchase agreement one other issue that uh, may come up is working capital so uh, you, you strike an agreement on the price, but the price will often be, and we should talk about share versus yep. asset sales as well, um, the, the price will often include a, uh, an amount of working capital that then would be altered uh, post at settlement or even after the, 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 the closure of the agreement. P- perhaps let's break those into two. Well, why do people choose asset sales versus share sales, even for a for a good-sized mid-market company? Yep. And how, in both cases, um, is working capital addressed? Yep. So, as you say, it's an excellent point, the, the debate about whether it's shares or assets. Um, our majority of clients are, are purchasers, and we would always... Um, say, you know, can we do it as an asset uh, deal? Because the beauty of an asset deal from a purchaser's point of view is we only take over the liabilities that are specifically defined as assumed liabilities. So we don't take over the risk of historical tax, so we don't have to do due diligence to the same degree uh, in the area of tax at all. And you only take that um, future risk uh, under your watch uh, going forward. From a vendor's point of view, they like the share uh, arrangement because basically they give you the box, they sell you the box, and um, it's got the nice toys in the box, (laughs) but it also has the historical heebie-greebies that may or may not be in the box Mm. but basically it's all your risk 
uh, and particularly tax, because tax can come up, you know, five, six years uh, down the, uh, the road, and we've had that happen uh, in reality, uh, have that. So from a purchaser's point of view, we like assets, vendor and our New Zealand tax, you know, no uh, capital gains as such, uh, prefers the shares. And as you've pointed out, Bruce, um, it is a wee bit more challenging to do assets the bigger the deal, bigger the size of the business, uh, etc. But we say it's a very valid issue uh, to deal with, um, particularly if you've got an historical problem um, with the vendor, even, you know, four or five years back, etc. We would also have had recent uh, examples on it where the client, um, we were halfway through doing a, a share one, and although we had tried to convince them to go down the asset route because it was only a relatively modest uh, acquisition of about 10 or so million, etc., and they had a death, uh, a workplace uh, death. And of course, we immediately then said to the purchaser, stop, you know, this needs to switch to an asset deal because <laughs> the problem that we would get if we bought the share deal is although the death was on the vendor's watch, we would inherit that yes. for under a health and safety one. So if we had a death in the future, would be two strikes. So for liability, personal liability, etc., etc., we desperately wanted to ring fence the 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 issue of the um, the the death um, to the company, and therefore we did not buy the shares. We bought the assets. You know that you say look. We're looking to buy it, you know, should buy assets and, you know, etc. No, 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 you know, this has had no problems, etc. You know, for the last 35 years. And then the experience was that the client decided they'd buy shares, etc. And then five years down the road, there was a knock on the door and it was Inland Revenue oh, uh, doing an audit in respect of it and not only the the problem that you've got there is all of the people had gone so it was five years down the track there was no one who had any corporate memory of, of doing that particular tax return or etc etc so you know even if in fact it doesn't eventuate in a claim um, you're you've got a truckload of cost and, and time management time on a non-productive event, which wasn't on your watch kind of thing. So, but I accept that, you know, the bigger the transaction, um, that makes it a wee bit more challenging. Do you find that the, uh, during the process, somewhere during the process, the, 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 the seller's representatives, whether the, the M&A people or the, the, their lawyers say, because you're client, the, the purchaser, please provide evidence of, of funds. Yeah. And if it's financing, please provide a letter from the, the financing company saying they'll provide funds. Do you, do you see that? Uh, only rarely, um, uh, mm. to be honest, mainly because um, thankfully our purchase is a mainly you know, big, well-known yeah. oh. purchases. But I have had that 
um, 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 where they the purchaser was a virtually an unknown entity, private, overseas, etc. And I'm, I would recommend that that's not an unreasonable request, um, particularly if it's a you know significant uh, acquisition. The vendor doesn't want to go through all the cost uh, and the aggro, only to then find out that basically, um, you know, the purchase is a phantom, um, and, and it's not realistic that they're going to be able to, um, you know, fund it uh, at all. So, if if you're a purchaser and you're not listed or you're not um, of a suitable size, I think you've got to accept that that is uh, a reasonable uh, request and you've got to then try and deal with um, what reasonable evidence can you provide that a person who's, you know, is looking to spend quite a lot of time and money in hearing negotiations with you to show your bona fides. Mm. I mean, it's a wee bit like, you know, if you've got a big flash car and someone knocked on the door and you had said, oh, well, look, I'm you know interested in your Maserati. Uh, personally, I'd just have a, you know, my Volkswagen, so no one would ever <laughs> have to spend a lot. But if it was a Maserati, you're not going to just let anybody give it a, 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 a spin. You know, you want to know that they've got the preferably interest, but even more important that they've got the loot. If it's a 100k car, you know, you'd, you, if an 18-year-old turned up, you'd, you'd say, on your bike, unless you can show me why I think that you should or could, you know, buy it for 100k, etc. A point I'd make is that for purchasers who aren't famous, having a very good website is very helpful. Yep. It can provide a lot of substantiation to any offer they make. Um, the, the, we should return to working capital. It sounds so boring, working capital, but it can be a heck of a thing. So in an asset sale, of course, that's, it's a stock yep. that um, will be counted, in effect, at some stage uh, at settlement. In the case of a share sale, talk through the mechanism there. Yeah, so as you say, um, working capital is often a component uh, in a share sale. And, and as you say, it's kind of they're linked to the same uh, things that uh, clients use the term working capital. Um, you know, I'm happy to pay you, let's say, $50 million uh, on the assumption that you're going to leave working, you know, an agreed level of working capital. Um, and, and in some ways, you're happy with that at the term sheet uh, or the MOU because they've agreed the price. Uh, but you you know, rightly point out, you know now when you come to do the definitive agreement, you've now got to get this defined, you know, agreed working uh, capital amount. And that's where, to be honest, it it does uh, help to get the accountants uh, involved in that stage, because as a as a lay person, you know, working capital is, you know, it's um, gross assets minus gross liabilities effectively. And then basically we have that and then you have the schedules as to how you're going to calculate it. And it's our view and our recommendation that those schedules are as detailed as possible and that there are model working capital calculations uh, in the schedules so that there's you know on the basis of their price that they agreed to pay 50 mil 
he is the working capital figures as at an historical part of the figures all filled in. And then there's going to be the working capital adjustment calculation in respect of the next schedule. And there's a blank schedule, but all the headings are all uh, in there. And even more importantly, the assumptions are in there, like stock. You know, is it, if it's 90 days, it's obsolete, blah, 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 blah. But you get all of those details by the accountants, preferably the ones who are actually going to do the calculation, etc. So we don't get a mismatch of who prepared and who actually does it. All of those agreed at the same stage because like you, if you that is the area where there is most likely to be a disagreement. If it's an asset deal, it will be around stock. And if it's a share deal, it will be around the calculation of working capital, etc., uh, etc. Et so you're better to have your argy-bargy doing those schedules, but preferably not only in words, but doing it in with a, a set of statements, agreed set, in the schedules with numbers in it, one with historical, so you can see what happened uh, in the past, etc., etc., and how it was treated. And then one is the form that you're going to use on closing, effectively. I'd also say that even at the MBIO stage, it's good to have some description of how working capital will be calculated. Uh, yeah. We've had the old one where there's no description at all. And yeah. It just means that, in theory, the, the vendor can strip the company yeah. just before settlement and, and, and take all that capital, which would be a heck of a lawyer's bill further yeah. down the track, I'm sure. How about you? What was your, what was your journey uh, to, to this point? Well, I, I was basically through um, university and then I went to one of the, uh, a national firm, or it wasn't a national firm um, at the very beginning, but at that stage quite a few years ago now, they then started to be a national uh, firm. And I've got to admit, my interest was in perhaps more of the public M&A. So it was, uh, I happened to do one of my master's papers on defences against takeovers. Um, and in those days, um, I put my hand up uh, to do that kind of work uh, in the office and there wasn't too many others um, who were interested uh, in that area. <laughs> so it was brought up on the Hawke's Bay Farmers Meat uh, takeover. <laughs> um, and then that developed into doing work with um, with uh, Ariadne, Briley's, uh, all of those, Mr Judge, Mr Briley. Mr Briley kindly came to my university seminar um, <laughs> as my guest speaker. Um, and I interviewed a lot of... Uh, people, I got a lot of help from uh, US law firms who freely gave uh, their documentation and information on takeover uh, to compare the different takeover type rules, etc. So I developed that at the early stage. I was very fortunate um, to be appointed to the takeovers panel um, for when it was established and spent 10 years uh, on the takeovers panel, which was again fantastic because uh, you actually got to be involved in policy issues 
So uh, the policy issues behind equal treatment, you know, fair price, uh, etc., has been great. And yet underlying that um, is the public M&A is you kind of do three or four a year uh, in that space, but you will have five or six private M&As going on. Why I like them is the negotiation. Right. So you get to meet um, the other side, you get to meet the other clients, you've got to negotiate with your own client, and then you've got to negotiate with your lawyer uh, on the other side. And it helps if they're an experienced uh, M&A lawyer on the other side. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Um, but you you can get a variety of people. Um, and I very much enjoy the, the, the cut and thrust of that negotiation. Um, and also, you learn a terrific amount about the business. So, you know, if you're doing uh, due diligence on Teagle Chicken, you'll learn about, you know, the difference between, you know, freezing chicken and fresh chicken. And I remember doing on Teagle many, many years ago. I was blown away that basically when I was a child, it was all frozen uh, chicken, was all, all uh, everything that you got. Yet it all moved to fresh chicken. And the margin on fresh chicken and the margin on cutting a breast, you know, up as opposed to a whole chicken is huge. Um, so you learned all about that. Uh, 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 in the industry and uh, in Teagle their big contract was KFC so if you didn't have KFC uh, the business would have been dead so you kind of quickly learnt where does the legal interchange or intersect with the business and where can you kind of protect so for someone like Teagle basically you wouldn't pay anything significantly for that business unless you got the KFC supply contract because it underwrote the whole amount of the business and you also you know if you said oh where's the growth we could export chicken no you can't kind of it was particularly in those days it was virtually impossible to um, export chicken because of the way the shelf life um, and the issues about um, you know disease uh, in chicken etc etc so it's that kind of combination between interesting law an interesting commercial uh, em- environment, which attracted me me to the area. Customer concentration issue there. If KFC is the the centre of the valuation of the of, of the company, and, and you've always lived in Wellington, or you've lived elsewhere. Or? No, no, always lived uh, in Wellington. So I was brought up. I did go to Christchurch. I started a degree in uh, engineering from the, um, at the outset, or engineering intermediate at Vic went to Christchurch and then had to ring up my parents to say that uh, I couldn't see myself doing engineering for 30 years um, and I'd switch. And then I came back here, I was a term late, so I then worked at a law firm just um, basically delivering stuff, doing court filing, doing basically anything, whether it was dry cleaning, Mm. deliveries or collection, and then went back to university, finished, uh, and then joined one of the the larger Wellington firms at that stage. And then it then decided to become part of KPMG Legal, uh, now 20 years ago or 19 years ago, 
that's when we set up the boutique firm that we've got at the moment that's been going for 19 years which focuses on corporate M&A and employment and I do the with my team and other colleagues do the M&A corporate and we've evolved into particularly assisting overseas clients um, and their special needs etc because they're the ones that mainly buy and it's mainly although everybody kind of thinks that it's more agricultural based uh, in New Zealand that's not quite true in the M&A space because we've still got co-ops and they don't do so much transactional work uh, at all it's actually in the tech space so New Zealand does have a very good name in tech um, and overseas companies particularly US companies look to do what's called bolt-ons of getting tech and uh, seeing if they can commercialise them, internationalise them. The New Zealand entrepreneur has found it difficult. The exception uh, is Mr Drury and the Zero. They're the exception to the rule, and it would be lovely if there was more of them uh, who could make that. But, you know, we've just done um, one where a Nelson Tech uh, has sold out to a North American uh, for about, you know, 30, 40 million set up 10, 15 years ago, and there's no other option really. You know, it's not big enough to list. Uh, You can't even, the challenging market to list uh, in New Zealand anyway. So they've sold out to another industry player. Uh, They've obviously paid a a price acceptable uh, to the the vendors, um, the few individuals behind that, and hopefully uh, the client can take it to the next level. Thank you for your time. Much appreciated. That was very interesting. Pleasure indeed, Bruce. We didn't get too complex either. No. We covered the main points. We'll we'll leave you to work and help the clients on that challenging (laughs) area of working capital, which I've got to admit, I'm very much uh, interested in understanding, uh, you know, do not have an accounting uh, background. But yes, uh, clients are very uh, liberal in their use of the phrase. But um, it, it's a lot more complicated uh, than the, the, just the ad lib. Yep, we'll do a working capital adjustment or an NTA adjustment. <laughs> uh, it does, and as you say, you can get really uh, shafted uh, if effectively you, you don't pay uh, attention to the detail. I have seen aggravation both ways on, on working capital, that's for sure. Thank you again. Pleasure indeed. All opinions expressed by podcast guests and myself are solely our own opinions and do not express the opinion of anyone else. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions. See you next time.